Welcome to the Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. My dad's side of the family, he had nine brothers and sisters, so it's ten total. So in that environment, like, you have to be the loudest in the room, right? And so, of course, we inherited that, me and my sister, which is really annoying for people, I think, that interact with me in conversations now, because they're like, just stop interrupting me. I'm trying to say something. Are you saying I can blame that on inheritance? Well, I have that excuse. I don't know about you, man. <laughs> My mom has nine brothers and sisters. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it sounds like it. it. See, it's inherited from the parents because they do it to you. So as a kid, you have this problem where they're talking over you whenever you're having a conversation. So you end up fighting back a little bit. My dad is one of eight as well. And it's the same thing. Our whole family is, like all of us kids, me and my sisters, we all yell at each other just over the top of everything. Yeah. And it drives my wife crazy. Like the first time she came home, she was like, you guys fight all the time. I'm like, no, this is just us talking. Like we just, you had to, you have to do that in order to be heard. Right. Yeah. I have five kids, so my house is that way. You're padded on both sides with this problem. So you definitely have an excuse. And my wife was the quiet kid <laughs> who just sits back and listens. She's probably going to change eventually if she hasn't already. It's a survival mechanism. like hey, Right. Yeah, exactly. You just have to do it. Yeah. 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 She's one of those people that starts to say something. And then if somebody talks over top of her, she's just done. And she'll never tell you what she was going to say, no matter how important it was. She's like, no, nah, you live with that. <laughs> she's going to make you pay for interrupting. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, she's so strong-willed that, you know, they say you can't change other people. Well, she's really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, yeah. You have one of two options uh, to retaliate in an environment like that, right? Like, either you become louder than everybody else, or you withhold information that you're interrupted in the middle of saying, you know. So, then people feel bad. Yep, I, I constantly feel bad. She's really good at that. <laughs> But I love her to death. We, uh, She also likes to take me seriously whenever I'm joking around, which breaks me of a lot of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> My wife will do that sometimes, too. I, I have a problem being like sarcastic too often. And so to break me of that, she'll every once in a while just take me 100% dead serious. Yep. That's what mine does. <laughs> Hashtag my elixir status. <laughs> <laughs> Now we've got the family show out of the way. <laughs> right. I mean, you got to kick things off with that, you know, get that out of the way and then get to the elixir stuff. Elixir stuff is boring compared to the family stuff. That's the fun, the, the fun parts of the family stuff. Definitely can be much more interesting to hear about what people have going on in their lives for sure. Particularly when in the community you see faces and names and you don't really know anything about any of those people. You feel like you get to know people just interacting on Slack or IRC or whatever, but you actually don't necessarily know a whole lot about what's going on in people's lives. It's funny how that works. When I meet people at conferences, I try to ask them about their personal life. I have had people be like, that's a little personal. I'm like, what? Asking you if you have children? Like, okay. <laughs> so you discover the people that, you know, take privacy really seriously. Yes. <laughs> they want to keep their work and personal life separate. That's part of the benefit of going to conferences. Yeah. 
you can watch a talk on YouTube and get whatever factual information that you were looking for out of out of that. But the benefit of going is not the talks. It's that you go to meet people and make connections and get to know people and go have dinner and whatever else. For sure. Well, strangely, they give out different lanyards for people. And you can have like a lanyard that says, do not take my picture. I don't even want to be in any pictures. Then they have one that's like, you must ask me. And then one that's like, hey, take all the pictures you want. Yeah. I usually put that one on and take my shirt off. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I haven't seen that yet, I guess. But it makes sense. Some people are particularly sensitive about that. Yeah. You don't know what kind of background somebody's coming in. They could have... I don't want my family to even know where, I, like my extended family. Like, there's people in my family that I would prefer to never speak to. Yeah, or like somebody who's got like a darker past that might even, you know, have somebody that's trying to find them or something, and and so they want to stay like low key, you know, yeah. just an anonymous name. But that's like Chris said, you know, the whole point of the conference is to be able to like get together and talk with people, not so much like the photo op side of it. You know, that's nice for the conference organizers, but for the rest of us, I think it's mostly just a chance to actually put faces to names, mm -hmm. get to know a little bit about the people you're working with on projects uh, on the open source side of things. That's where we met, I think. Was it Lone Star? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that conference was fine, whatever. But the like the things that I got out of that conference were, like, I met, I got to hang out with you. I got to sit and talk with Dave for a while, talk to Chris for a while. We just got to establish these sorts of relationships and that's i think where a lot of the conversations that we've had since then came from just the fact that we got to hang out at one conference lone star in particular i feel like is great for that because you know it's a smaller conference but it's also kind of where things started so for me at least it's got some of that and it seems like a lot of the people that show up there are either locals because it's convenient or people that were there fairly early on in elixir's life and, and just want to kind of come back and see people again because you were giving a talk on consistent state, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, and that spawned a whole bunch of conversations since then. We're talking at Codebeam a little bit about some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was when you were working on Raft. Yeah, yeah. Was that last year? That was this spring, or spring, winter, I guess. Oh, like right around Elixir days. Or no, was it last year? No, it was uh, February and March for those two conferences. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Elixir Days was that for me because it was the first time I felt like I had gone to a conference where I could just go and hang out with people. And that was something that was really, really important and special about Elixir Days, I think. Yeah. Was that there was no wall in between speakers and everybody else. Nobody was flying in and then leaving the same day, which is a thing that happens at big conferences when you get these like big name speakers or keynote speakers in. They like literally fly in, give the talk and then fly out because they got other stuff to go do. And there's like none of that. So you get to hang out with all these people. I think like at one point I was just looking around and I was like, oh, I'm at dinner with like Dave Thomas and Francesco and James Fish and like all these people and like having these conversations, Sasha and Paul Lamb, like all these, all these people who and having these like important conversations. I don't know. It was, that was really, really wild for me. I mean, that's basically why I have my job because I met Ben there and then we just started, you know, talking to each other, hanging out, met up at other conferences, other stuff like that. And then that's how I'm at Bleacher Report now. I moved at Elixir Days from, from doing web development and Phoenix stuff to mostly doing nerves work now because I sat at a table and ended up at the same table as Frank Hunleth and we just talked and I like hardware. I played with it a lot. So yeah, from there turned into now for two years, I've done hardware work. 
Speaking of Frank, he's like my favorite person in the Elixir community. Truly the most awesome individual I've ever met. Yeah, I always tell him that I can't figure out who's nicer in the uh, Elixir community, (laughs) him or Jose. Yeah. Frank has been super awesome. So if you're listening, Frank, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being you, Frank. That's right. It's like the nicest person ever. Yeah, as far as like the Elixir side of things these days, like I just literally just released 2.0 distillery yesterday technically it was the night before but i had a conversation with jose where i tweaked some things so 2.0.1 is the final release i guess that one you know is going to be i think pretty big it's taking configuration in a direction that i think the core team wants to go eventually but it gives us sort of a platform for testing out the ideas and, and seeing what works and what doesn't. My intern's super excited. Last week, I told him you were coming on and I said, hey, is there anything that you want me to ask him? And the very top thing on there was, when can we expect an official 2.0 distillery release? And then this morning, I said, hey, why don't we uh, make sure these are still relevant? And he pulls up. He's like, well, 2.0's released, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry to ruin the question. <laughs> I am going to write a post, more of an official announcement uh, this afternoon, but I haven't gotten around to it, mostly because I was cleaning up small things and tweaking the tests and whatnot yesterday, so I didn't get around to it. But I figured I'd at least put it out there for the people that were already using the RC releases and helping me test some things. And that was awesome. A lot of good feedback came out of that, ultimately kind of shaped things, I think. You know, the way I was originally going to take it is... The big feature in, in Distillery 2.0 is this thing called config providers. And, and what it basically is, is a behavior that you can implement that when run, you know, receives whatever arguments you want to pass it, define that in your release configuration. But when run, it's supposed to push whatever into the application env. This runs early in boot. At least initially, that was my plan. Before really anything has started, except for like the really core, core stuff, all the providers would go. And then at that point, you know, all of your applications could boot and work with a fully reified config. So are these runtime configurations? Yeah, exactly. It's for runtime config. They're like runtime-ish. Runtime-ish, yeah. They're early enough in the boot that you can stop the boot process if the stuff isn't there, which is like part of the guarantee that you want to give to people. You need, let's just use environment variables because that's like what most people end up using. So like, you have to have these environment variables here present before we will stop the boot process. Yes. To some degree. So like that's a guarantee that you can give people with, with the way that you've constructed this stuff. Yeah, exactly. You can do all your validation transformation before anything's booted. And then you know once you've gotten past that point that you at least have that out of the way. Like the configuration should be valid for your application. Now you might have, you might not want to put all that in a provider. It depends. Like I probably would put as much of the validation transformation there as I can, but you may want that to be part of your application because you may not necessarily know if configuration is valid until you've like tried to connect to a database, for example, right? Sure. Your providers shouldn't really be doing that kind of thing at all. But you can at least make sure that they're the right types, that the values are sane, that sort of thing. But the intent really is to still adhere to like the way we want people in the community to do configuration, which is very sort of a functional paradigm, right? Like you make sure all your configuration is ready to go during your startup, and then you push that down through your supervisor tree. 
So once you've got your kind of like your big config objects or whatever the data structure happens to be, that gets pushed through your tree in whatever shape it needs to be. The idea being that once you've initialized your supervisor tree with this configuration, that it's sort of fixed. You can predict the behavior of the system because the configuration is not going to change underneath you because of some global state. That's the problem with application M, right? Is you change some value here and it potentially changes how your system behaves. Which some people might on the surface be like, well, that's how I want it to work. I want to change the config and I have the system adapt to that. But that's in practice not what happens. Instead, it just breaks stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, or it doesn't actually change it. You change the listen port for your HTTP listener and it doesn't actually change the port, but it appears like the configuration has changed, you know, that sort of thing. So the way that config priors have ended up is that it's taken a step further now so that it pre-boot, before we ever boot the release itself, we run an instance of the VM with all the code loaded and enough applications started to run the providers. The providers push everything into the application M and then that gets persisted after all the providers have run into the sys.config file. The release then boots with that. This allows us to leverage all the you know internals in OTP for dealing with application upgrades, that kind of thing, which is all based around sysconfig, but also forces people to make sure that their configuration really is like decided when the release boots. You still have all the power being able to decide things at runtime, but it prevents you from doing things like rerunning the providers or you know trying to use them for global state we're pushing stuff into the application at boot and the release and it should never change that should be like fixed data or things that you're using for some kind of state but really that's not an appropriate place for that kind of thing where i want people to go i know jose feels like that and and you guys as well i think from some of the conversation you've had is is really more of this like initialize your config at boot push it through your application and if you have to change it, that's fine. But the way there's an OTP mechanism for doing that, and that's the config change uh, callback in the application module. So you implement this, and you can, when the config is changed, whether that's a hot upgrade or whether it's manually triggered, you can instruct parts of your application to restart or do what they need to do to react to changes. And I know in Phoenix, if you looked at, I think, the endpoint. Uh, implementation or if it was an, I think it was maybe the application module that it generated I don't know if it still does it it actually generated that config change callback for you in order to itself deal with those config changes because it needed to react to some of that it was only doing it for just Phoenix but in that callback you can do multiple things you know it's per application so each application has an opportunity to react to configuration changes for its config and I don't think a lot of people know that that's there or how it works or how it's intended to be used, but it's well worth investigating because it's a very, very powerful tool because you get this opportunity to have a deterministic configuration. So you push all your config into your supervisor tree and then it is the way it is. It allows you to reason about your system from this source config. But if you do need to change it at runtime, there is a mechanism for doing that. It doesn't require you to necessarily completely restart your release but you do have to follow the OBT, OTP architecture for that. So anyways, that's sort of the direction that all that has gone and is the major thing that's in Distillery 2.0. There's some other features as well, but that was the one where a lot of the work, I think, really went into. And ultimately, it was the prerequisite for getting some release tooling into core itself was we needed to figure out a solution to config, see how it plays out in practice, and then sort of formalize those things.
once that's been formalized and the prerequisites are in Elixir, then we can build the core tools out. So that's kind of the direction. I think that config change callback, if it gets documented in the Elixir documentation and people aren't going off to the Erlang documentation to find it, it'll probably start to be used a lot more too. Yeah, I had been meaning to write a bit more about that in the distillery docs. I'm also working on a book for pragmatic programmers where I dig into a little bit more of the meat of that stuff. But I still feel like it should be really just obvious stuff that you see right out the gate when you're starting to build applications. And so I want to at least make it part of the distillery docs. I, as part of the rewrite, I did write sort of a guideline on configuration in general. Not necessarily specific to releases, but just how to architect your application and, and deal with runtime config, that sort of thing. And then it ties into, of course, the the features that Distillery has to let you do configuration. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's you know more about like how do I even design an application when I have parts of it that may change at runtime. And I think once that becomes a little bit more commonplace, there's more examples like books pick it up, it's present in talks and that sort of thing. It'll become much more second nature. You know that's why there's so much momentum behind some of the like bad patterns, if you will, is that a lot of those were evolved early on in response to just the state of the world at that time and trying to figure out how to to cope with some of the problems unfortunately like it ended up in a direction that we later realized was not ideal but because of all the existing content and everything directions around that now it's kind of this confusing mix of advice so speaking loudly and clearly about where things are going and and how to do things now i think is important because it will help dispel some of the confusion. I completely agree. I mean, these discussions have been happening more and more, uh, which is good. And they've been getting louder and louder. I think that forum post forever ago about what if we had this like pre-boot, on-boot thing as part of config.exs or whatever. So that kind of sparked a lot of these conversations too. So it's good that people are actually talking about this stuff now. Yeah, and that brings up another thing I forgot about, which is that there is a config provider for Elixir's config file. It's not enabled by default. None of the config providers are, they're all opt-in. You choose the ones that you want or build one of your own design. But the, you know, mixed config one is designed so that you can write release specific config.exs, store it separately from your other mixed config files, like under rel config or something. That's how I've been doing it in my examples. And then some of the test applications I've built around this. And in there, just set the things that change at runtime, right? So your mixed config should be like all static stuff for the most part, like compile time config really is the purpose and defining the config settings that your application needs. But uh, the release time config file would be just the things that change at runtime and you do whatever you need to do to set those in that config file. But at least allows you to sort of reuse all the intuition you have about mixed config files at this point. The one thing that still is not going to work is dumping functions in mix.config. You can call functions, but setting them as values for config is not. You still need to use like an MFA tuple or something like that because ultimately it's going to be persisted to sys.config. But the problem historically with sys.config was that we were converting the mix.config file to that and you didn't have any runtime control over it. That's why we had like the replace OSBars business and all that jazz. And that still exists, but it's there really for like the vm.args file primarily would be the purpose there. Oh, right. Sure. Okay. That's fair. Because there's still some, you know, useful 
tools there. I would like to eventually extend maybe the config provider stuff to let you somehow extend like the VMRs that are going to be passed to the final release. I'm not really sure what that would look like at this point yet, but there are some potential options there. Sync nodes mandatory and optional. And if you're using distributed applications, all those take node names. So it'd be nice to be able to use config providers to figure those out and then inject those into the VM.args that gets ultimately generated. Right now, there's some tricks you have to kind of pull to make that work in the VM.args file. I actually, that was another thing I added to the distillery documentation in the rewrite is uh, instructions on how to do that specifically. So if you are using those settings, which I think are, I've seen them quite often, more so than I thought I would see you at least have you know some information on how to how to get there with that. Based on what I've read inside the distillery doc so far, because currently we don't we don't live the release lifestyle. <laughs> it looks like exactly the kind of thing that you want to provide in the sense that most people don't actually want to boot their apps if they don't have the environment variables or if they can't talk to etcd and pull in their initial config. Like that's just not a guarantee. We don't have applications constructed in such a way that they can boot in sort of degraded modes that often, because typically our apps, if you're building like a stock, you know, run in the middle, Phoenix, Ecto, whatever nonsense, you boot that thing up and it's gonna try to start all these workers. And if it can't you start them in some way, it needs to just fail because it can't run in degraded mode. That gets to a conversation I wanted to have with you anyway, about like this whole stacking theory, like how do we layer applications? That's a really, really good guarantee to give people about uh, like how their conf- like how their applications are going to boot, and it probably removes a lot of the like implicit replace OS vars, and then there's a dollar sign, and then the- and it works for things that aren't just environment variables. Like that, that's really awesome. And being able to convert some like friendlier form of config to kind of whatever internal structure it needs. Recently, I wrote a Tom L library for Elixir just because I felt like writing another parser. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> yeah, as you do. And there was a, you know, an opportunity there to make that config provider. So I wrote a provider for that library as part of it. And I added like an extension for doing like arbitrary transformation of the keys. So you parse out a config file and it has all the values in it. And Tom L has some primitive types, but you may want config to have like an IP address tuple instead of an IP address string or something like that, right? So it has this idea of transforms that you can configure it with. But in general, the idea of taking like a value such as a string and converting it to like an actual data structure that your application needs is super common. And so I think that's where providers really uh, have a lot of benefits there as well, beyond just making sure that you have config, is giving your application an opportunity to like convert all that stuff into the form it's needed so that the rest of your application doesn't have to care about that. You can code very assertively knowing that if that config was set and if it wasn't set, the application never booted in the first place. But if it was set, you're going to get the right type in here. So you don't have to spend a lot of time like, okay, I'm going to try and pull a value from application and well, maybe it's like one of those replace OS bar strings, or maybe it's a string and it's supposed to be an integer or something like that. And you have to do all this work to like convert it and then deal with failure converting it. You know, it's just a nightmare. And so, like you were saying, Chris, that's really the big benefit to providers is, and it ties into the stacking theory side of things, where the baseline of your system includes configuration. 
if you've gotten to the baseline, config is taken care of. Your system should have never booted if you're missing required configuration. Right. You shouldn't try to start the application and have Ecto try to connect to a database when the database host environment variable is nil or whatever, and then just blow up for some obscure reason. Like you should never get to that point. But the stuff's not there, break. Yeah, that's the ideal for sure. That's kind of how I think some of this config stuff you know, evolved as well as just knowing that that was going to have to be the case. And we've seen that just in practice too. That's what people are expecting from things like config.exs. It's all decided when they try and boot. As far as like the stacking theory stuff goes in general and starting a degraded condition, I think that should be more common than not. I think it's not common because people don't necessarily want to think about the implications but I don't, it's not always as difficult as it appears. So like I wrote as part of the new docs as well, a guide for deploying AWS. And in that it bootstraps a whole infrastructure using CloudFormation so that people don't really have to deal with that. But the kind of general setup is that, you know, it's a an auto-scaling group that's tied to a code pipeline deploy CI thing with load balancers sitting in front of it. So it's a Phoenix application that talks to an RDS database and it's just I tweak the to-do MVC standard front-end thing to talk to Phoenix and actually write to the database as its backing store. That example application is the one that that guide is built around. But one of the things I threw in there just because I wanted to wanted to just see if it would fit into the guide as like a you know interesting idea is that it's using Ecto, but rather than as in the default application that's generated, rather than starting Ecto as part of the application supervisor tree, I have another module, sort of a proxy for that, a database module that boots. And that thing tries to start Ecto when it is in its init callback. But if it fails, that's fine. It sets a flag in an ETS table that is publicly accessible so callers can can check if the database is available. But then it just manages watching that Ecto supervisor. It tries to start it every five seconds if it's not available. And once it's started successfully, it monitors it. So if that goes down, it sets the flag appropriately and will attempt to bring it back again. That's one of the ideas of the stacking theory, right? Is like you have the baseline of your system and you're trying to step up a level of operational functionality by trying to do something that's a little riskier than the baseline your system can support. So foundationally, it's almost always a database or a message queue of some kind. Right. Rabbit, Kafka, something like that. Yeah, exactly. So you want most of your application to interact with like a proxy of that resource because of how fragile they typically are. You don't want every part of your application that needs to worry about the queue or the database to be exposed to its fragility. You want them to be able to say, like, I want this written to the database or I want to read this from the database and get back a like, here's the result or yes, that was successful or oh, there was a problem. You know, I don't know what you want to do there and let the client deal with whether it wants to retry or just explode whatever it wants to do. But you need to give those choice choices to the clients. And that's what the a proxy like that module is for. And whether the proxy is individual workers in a pool that each maintain their own connection to the database and do that, you know, kind of monitor and restart thing if necessary, or something like I threw together, which is just monitoring Ecto itself, which kind of has its own pool management. The idea being that your application should be able to start. So like using an example where like the RDS database isn't available. This application will start up and the endpoints will work, but they'll return errors for operations which you know are unavailable because the database is unavailable. The health check endpoint will return like, hey, the application is up, but it's degraded. 
that's kind of the idea, particularly with things like liveness and readiness checks. You want your application to be able to respond to whatever is looking at that and be able to say, okay, this application is degraded for whatever reason. I'm going to fire off an alert. I'm also going to disconnect it from the load balancer and keep checking until it says that it's okay again. I think that sort of architecture makes a lot of sense. Now you can get, it gets a little hairy if you have nested levels of this, right? But there is still kind of, that's what the stacking theory is, is there is intent that you can layer this, that once you've gotten to your database, that things that depend on that database to do something else or, you know, add another layer of service to the system um, can do the same thing, but using that database connectivity as its baseline. And if that database goes down, then they can crash and restart and try and come back. It's not that every layer has to care about everything below it and monitor all of it. All it needs to do is just care about its baseline. If the database goes down and I have to assume that's my baseline, then I need to just die, just crash. And then once the database comes back, the way the application is structured is that that process will then be restarted and can try and you know build back up from there. It's more complicated of an architecture for sure. But if you want your application to be resilient, which is oftentimes the whole purpose of using Elixir or Erlang, this is kind of table stakes, I guess, for a really resilient system. I mean, if you can get away with applications that just kind of crash and burn because you're running a bunch of them and you've got the load balancer kind of just dealing with that or an orchestrator like Kubernetes doing it, then maybe it's not as important. But if you're running you know, a heavily stateful cluster where each node matters, then you can't afford to have some transient failure blow up all your nodes. They have to be able to deal with that and self-heal. Otherwise, you know, you don't get a whole lot of benefit out of supervision. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could think of plenty of scenarios, even at, with, at work stuff, where we need to be able to heal from things like databases just going down or like just dropping connections or just, you know, massive latency spikes, all these kinds of things that can kill some of some of the different clusters and stuff like that, depending on the application. And you have to be able to degrade from that. And if your only method of degrading is either we're up or we're not, <laughs> like if it's all or nothing. Yeah, I was just reading something. I forget who wrote it. I think her name is Cynthia something. I, I wish I remembered her name, but we can find it and add it to notes. Yeah, I can I can track it down for sure. Um, she wrote a really interesting article on designing systems like from more of an infrastructural point of view with where flow control and back pressure and all that is part of the system. Like how you you need more active feedback between things like a load balancer and downstream systems. You can't just have like this on off switch because then you get really weird behavior when this you get into the system as a whole, right? things aren't dealing well with higher than normal load. Like they're overloaded, but they're not crashing yet. If you just have like this on off condition, like traffic is going to be continued to routed to those things until they just explode. And that's not ideal. What you want is to be able to say, okay, that node can't deal with much more traffic. So I'm not going to route anything more to it for now until it says like, okay, my load's going down. And that might be as simple as just tying like CPU usage into like your load balancer's feedback. So it can say like, oh, my, this app is like 70% CPU and these others are at 20 and 30%. I'm going to route all traffic to the 20 and 30 until things balance out again. And I know HA proxy for sure has a thing that can 
hook into that. Uh, it's got this thing called like agent checks, I think, or something like that. It's just a TCP socket that you write like some, you know, well-structured text to basically, but you can feed it information that it will then pull into its load balancing algorithm. And the result of a system like that is that it deals much more sanely with load because things are smoother the way it reacts to load and, and things breaking is not as uneven as chaotic. You have an opportunity to actually shift things around in the system or even slow things down at the load balancer before it gets to your application, depending on how you want to deal with that stuff. But that idea was something that I hadn't really considered before. I don't know why. It seems kind of obvious in retrospect, but I guess it's just that the tooling isn't necessarily there for that. Like we have... Well, it's hard. I mean, first of all, you have to be able to monitor your system in such a way that you know what your failure scenarios are and you know how they're going to get overloaded. Because if you have a fully IOPS bound problem, that's different than if you have a fully CPU bound problem, whatever. Like, And, and realistically, services are some mix of the two, right? And then it's just hard because you have to build all of that at almost an application level. You have to be able to get the observability out of there and then pipe it in into your, to your load balancers. And I think we like to think of these things as just being really dumb. Oh, I'll just put another cache in front of it, or I'll just put another load balancer in front of it, and then I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> well, then you, you hop into an embedded system, and you have to build all this stuff internally yourself. There's there's not like you're not going to throw a hot proxy in front of something. You actually have to build this into your Elixir application as part of, like, if you're passing stuff off to a pool, you have to be able to balance stuff in that pool based on each individual worker sometimes. Yeah, and I mean, there's some great Erlang tools even for doing that within an application. From just an observability standpoint, you have alarms, which I rarely see people use, but are a hugely beneficial operational tool because you have the ability to trigger sort of this global state that can be monitored, but can also be used to drive decisions in the system. So you can trigger an alarm in one part of the system, and another part of the system can be watching for that alarm condition and be able to react to it and say like, okay, I'm not going to route traffic to this pool anymore because, or this worker, whatever it happens to be, because it's in like a overloaded condition. Are the alarms a set group of things, like number of messages in a queue, or is this something that it's a framework? You can attach metadata to alarms, but alarms in general are more of a on-off type situation. So an alarm would be triggered when, say, CPU usage has been above whatever for like 30 seconds. So you would set alarm at that point, maybe some metadata about what that is or, or why you care about it, whatever your system needs with regards to that alarm. Other parts of the system, say whatever's doing ingest for the data that's coming into the system, can then see that that alarm has been triggered factor that into its decisions about back pressure or whether it's going to even accept requests or how its schedules work even, like drawing down the amount of concurrency in the system if there's too many processes or something like that. You know, How you react to it is not set in stone. It's really up to your application, what you need it for. The benefit of alarms, though, is that they're not just a metric. It's not something that you push into a, a time series store and later on come in and look at it. It's like, these are things that your system needs to deal with now. Whether it's notifying an actual human being, like you could drive pager alerts off of alarms in an Erlang system, or you can actually, within the system itself, automatically react to alarms. It depends on, on what the alarms are and how you want to deal with them, but they are stateful. So you can turn them on and then later say, oh, this has been addressed. Or you can even say, like, I've, I'm looking at this right now. Actually, that feature might be part of the Elarm 
library not that's elarm the the alarm handler built into sassel doesn't give you much more than it's on or off but that's the cool part is from an embedded systems perspective you know you don't have to be reliant on getting your metrics out of the warehouse or wherever they are to some stats d prometheus collector or wherever and then triggering alarms off of that you can do this literally in the device because the alarm handler is just built into sassel yeah. Right. Then you can throw all your MQTT messages on the floor when your CPU is spiked. I mean, you can choose exactly what you want to do. I mean, I think you could just drive all, like you could do some of that based on metrics you collect from Xometer. Like you could literally do all of this inside of the beam if you needed to do that. Yeah. I know they touched on it a little bit or Francesco did in his Sign for Scalability book. And I think that's part of the whole OAM concept, you know, forget what it all stands for, observability, administration, management, or whatever. But the point is that it's part of this suite of tools that you have. Metrics are part of it. That gives you sort of longer-term observability, the ability to go in and say, like, okay, we saw this you know, spike in HTTP requests in this time frame, and here's the impact it had on the system. Or the system crashed after getting a bunch of messages, and like, here's all the different things that changed in the system over this time period. That's super useful for kind of coming back in and diagnosing a problem, right? But but you have to know the problem happened. Exactly. And that's where alarms and I mean, if your system crashes, then yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna know that something went wrong. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Hopefully, Ideally. Yeah. <laughs> If you don't, you've got a bigger problem, probably. But yeah, alarms are a key part of that. You need that sort of like, instant like this is happening right now and then you need to be able to go and say like well why did that happen you know if this is part of the system's design and you know we just reached some threshold that's fine and actually i think alarms are used even internally for some things uh, I, I believe that if you use the osmon application to do some monitoring in the system like cpu and so on if garbage collection is taking too long or there's a few different flags you can set uh, I'm pretty sure those use alarms to set those conditions. Uh, they also get logged to standard out. I think the ability to choose whether it's automatically dealt with or you deal with it sort of as a human logging in with a remote shell or whatever is part of the benefit too. You don't necessarily have to make your system automatically react to every condition, but I think you do want to tie some observability tools into that, whether it's something like Peter Duty or whatever. Maybe it's just part of your health check endpoint returns any active alarms. We do that for some alarms. Like we have some custom alarms that we start to throw from different services that, that we use alarm handler for this. Nice. And then we actually, we actually push real, we don't always push like pages directly, but we push events that then can trigger like a page from our sort of unified stats event collector thing. Yeah. If you've got al alarms that are triggering really often, you for sure don't want those tied into any kind of alerting. There's a level of indirection there just because then we can choose how the pages actually work. And like if we need to page, if we need to add extra data, I'm a big fan of putting in diagnostic steps in all my pages. So you start getting a list of like, here's how you go get the logs. Here's the page to go look at the metrics. Here's how you start to observe stuff. I put all that stuff in my alerts when they go out on a page. I throw like data jog charts in there and whatever else, like, so you can start to diagnose it via that. Yeah, that's super useful. So that's easier to manage outside of the system. But if all you have is the system, then, you know, you can probably make something work. Yeah, I think in general, the approach that you've taken is kind of where you'd want things to be like, 
The alarms from one node in your system shouldn't necessarily be driving alerts directly. You want them to be dealt with in aggregate. So whatever is watching the whole system, you know, is checking for alarm and then dealing with whether it needs to aggregate those into one alert or, you know, just one for that particular alarm, who knows. But I do think that, yeah, it's, it's super beneficial to have, if you're on the hook for fixing problems, a lot of those steps like here's the logs here's the charts you know of the top metrics that we care about for this thing that broke you know here's our slos which here's where where they got violated <laughs> like here's why super super beneficial yeah especially like you know when you have a team that is of size in where not everybody has that sort of like hard one knowledge and you need to start diagnosing problems quickly for whatever reason like you're not on call or someone else is having to pick this up or whatever it is even with that hardware knowledge, it's nice to have that stuff in your face and not have to go dig it out. Yeah, I just, get, I just click links, and all of a sudden I'm yep. like looking at Done. stuff that matters. <laughs> For sure. Yep. Yeah, it's almost a dashboard of sorts for that particular problem. Hello, everyone. This is Amos. We had a really long conversation with Paul, so we've split this into two episodes. So I guess you'll have to come back next week to hear the rest.